Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. And I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we present to you a murder mystery. A true whodunit. Full of intrigue, red herrings, and conspiracy theories. Where nothing is as it seems, and everyone is a suspect. We welcome you to climb down the rabbit hole with us as we examine the mysterious, baffling, and incredibly vicious and cruel story of the still unsolved 1981 Ketty Murders, The Cabin 28 Massacre. And this one is a request from a listener. So thank you, Mike, for listening and reaching out. We appreciate it so much. Let's begin. The year is 1979, and Sue Sharp, mother of five, has had enough of her cruel and abusive husband. So Sue packs up her kids, 13-year-old John, 12-year-old Sheila, 10-year-old Tina, eight-year-old Ricky, and the baby, three-year-old Greg, and left Connecticut behind, heading all the way across the country to California for a new life, settling in the little town of Quincy in the Sierra Nevada foothills, where her brother Don was currently living. All right, a note here. We're going to start this story with the version that you read about in most articles and see on most television programs. It's like the more wholesome version where many of the true facts are left out. But if you take a closer look or do some digging, which we're going to do, you'll see that this is just like a David Lynch film. As the layers of white picket fence America peel away, we see a dark underbelly. Now, I've been to the town of Quincy many times. They got a big old hippie music festival there. And it's called High Sierra. It's a lot of fun. But to set the scene, Quincy is like this tiny little hamlet nestled in the deep forest. Basically, it's in the middle of nowhere, way off the beaten path. It's got a real alpine feel to it, a lot of ponderosa pines. The town itself, it's very wholesome. It feels like something out of old Americana, clean and proper, lots of rose gardens. Very, very much like Twin Peaks or Lumberton from Blue Velvet. This case has just such an insane David Lynch vibe. It's crazy. So let's start there. Wholesome Americana. And then we're going to peel back the layers. Sue and her five children move into a little trailer her brother had recently moved out of in the Claremont Trailer Village. It was tight, but they were a happy family and made it work. Sue got a job washing dishes and received a $250 stipend from the military because her now ex-husband was in the Navy. There were lots of other kids around, and the children quickly made lots of friends, played baseball, hung out in the arcade, ran around in the woods, rode their bikes. 
They were 70s kids, drinking out of hoses, climbing trees, catching frogs, shaggy hair hanging in their faces, just like an old family sitcom. The single mom and her kids together against the world. So wholesome. Sue starts taking secretarial classes at the local community college, trying to better herself and find a career. And in November 1980, when the sheriff moves out of his cabin in the little town of Ketty, just down the road, Sue and her family are given the opportunity to move in. Ketty had been founded as a resort in 1910, with 33 cabins and a two-story lodge, boasting the beauty of the pine forests, the purity of the spring water, and the amazing trout fishing. The resort was famous for their barbecued bear ribs and sherry-basted raccoon steaks, all shot locally. Okay, Krista, just curious, would you eat bear ribs and raccoon steak? Even if I hadn't been pescatarian for the last, oh god, I don't know, since... 2007, I wouldn't eat bear ribs or raccoon steaks, especially not. Although I will say barbecued anything or sherry basted anything sounds good, but I guess I'd have to do like tofu or tuna steak. I'd eat them. Pescatarian, we call that aquarium. I like it. I like it. <laughs> aquarium all the way. All right. Well, Ketty had remained a rustic little getaway for folks from cities like Sacramento and San Francisco. But by the late 70s, the cabins were starting to fall into disrepair. And instead of being weekend getaways for urban vacationers, they were now being rented month to month to local folks. Cabin 28 had been expanded a couple times. And rickety and slightly ramshackle as it was, the two-story house was like a castle to the family of six after living in a trailer for over a year and a half. And they're so happy. Things are all finally coming together. Sue is making friends with the neighbors who all have children too. And so all the kids are running around having a blast with their new buddies. John and his friend Dana joined the baseball team. Sheila and her new friend Alyssa from Cabin 27 right next door, they go to church together. Ricky and his new friend Justin, they have sleepovers together. And it was on a night just like this, on April 11th, 1981, that the massacre would happen. It was a huge sleepover night. 15-year-old John had his buddy Dana Hall over. They were in the basement room. 10-year-old Ricky had his buddy neighbor Justin over. They were in an upstairs bedroom. And 14-year-old Sheila was sleeping at her friend Alyssa Siebold's house right next door in cabin 27. Alyssa's father, James, was the handyman for the cabins. When Sheila woke up at her friend's cabin on the morning of the 12th, it was a Sunday, and she realized she hadn't brought her dress clothes to go to church in. So she darted from her friend's house across the short distance to her cabin, dark clouds looming, and a patter of rain falling, and swung open the door to see three bound corpses in puddles of blood. She was so shocked, she couldn't even register who it was. She just knew they were dead and covered in blood right there in her living room. So she dropped her blankets and ran, screaming hysterically, back to the Seabolts in cabin 27. While the sheriff is being frantically called, Jamie Seabolt goes to cabin 28 to investigate. 
He peers into the bedroom window and sees, amazingly, five-year-old Greg, ten-year-old Ricky, and Ricky's friend Justin all sleeping peacefully. He opens the window, wakes them, and calls them all through the window. A very smart move. For one, the killer could very well still be in the house. Two, you don't want the children to see such a horrific sight. And three, you don't want to disturb the crime scene at all. Law enforcement arrives, and this is what they find. The porch light had been unscrewed. The street light turned off. The phone was off the hook. All the drapes were shut tight. There was blood on the floor, walls, and ceiling. The doors and furniture were drenched in blood as well. On the floor, by the sofa, Sue Sharp lay on her side in a large puddle of blood, partially covered with a blanket. She was naked from the waist down, and a pair of red shorts lay beside her. Her underwear had been cut off and used as part of a gag. Her wrists and ankles were bound together in front of her, first with medical tape, then two pieces of electrical cord. She'd been stabbed in the chest and slashed across the throat horizontally, the wound passing through her larynx and nicking her spine. Her face had been bludgeoned with a hammer, fracturing and loosening her teeth, and the side of her head had been smashed with the butt of an air rifle, an 880 daisy. Though she was naked below the waist and her panties had been cut from her and strapped across her mouth, the autopsy showed no signs of rape. Her 15-year-old son Johnny lay by the door. He too was bound with both medical tape and electrical cords, his throat slashed as well, his head beaten with a hammer, his skull fractured so badly his brains were oozing out. The electrical cord wrapped around Johnny's ankles led to his 17-year-old friend, Dana Hall Wingate, wrapping around one of his ankles as well, connecting the two. Dana was lying between Sue and Johnny, and his head was resting on a cushion from the couch. Though he had medical tape on one wrist and the electrical cord wrapped around an ankle, he was not bound. His face and head had been battered with a hammer, one tooth knocked out, the others fractured and loosened. But his death was ruled to be by strangulation. He hadn't been stabbed to death like Sue and Johnny. Between them was a steak knife that was bent at a 30-degree angle, obviously damaged during the crime, most likely bent when it was thrust into bone. There's also a butcher knife and a blood-soaked hammer. Forensics would later say two distinct hammers had been used in the crime, but only one was found. Later, another bloody knife and bloody napkins were found in a trash bin behind the local store. But where was 12-year-old Tina? She was missing. Nowhere to be found. Because this now involved the kidnapping of a minor, which is a federal offense, the FBI came on the scene, just like Twin Peaks. But instead of Special Agent Dale Cooper, it was Special Agent John Douglas. And just like Fire Walk With Me, the local sheriff, Doug Thomas, who you may remember lived in Cabin 28 before Sue, didn't want the feds running the show and was uncooperative with the FBI. He, interestingly enough, calls in the organized crime unit from the state's Department of Justice in Sacramento and not a homicide unit. The first suspect is her abusive ex-husband back in Connecticut. Rumors even begin to circulate that he molested the children and Tina was his favorite. 
So he's first followed and investigated, then called in for an interview. But he has a rock-solid alibi. He was nowhere near the area the night of the crime. He could not have committed it. The sheriffs begin to interview people. First, there's Martin Smart. He's widely considered to be one of the main suspects in this case. So remember the name, Martin Smart. He's the stepfather of Justin, the friend of Ricky who was sleeping there that night and was found in the bedroom the next day unharmed. Martin is a Vietnam vet suffering from PTSD. He has an explosive temper. In the past, he'd try to run people down with his car and threatened to blow his parents' house up. So Martin, he knew Sue pretty well. Sue and his wife Marilyn were good friends. And the rumor was that when Marilyn confided in Sue that Martin was abusive, Sue told Marilyn to leave him as she'd left her own abusive husband. And when Martin heard about this, it sent him into a rage. So goes the story. Martin volunteers that he heard the killer used a hammer, something that hadn't been released to the public yet, and tells the sheriff that a hammer had been stolen from him earlier that day. Which, I don't know, always strikes me as odd, in that my hammers, they go missing all the time. They usually just end up in a junk drawer in my pickup truck or out by the fence I was fixing. And with kids running around, you'd expect a hammer to not be where you left it. But I guess it was an expensive hammer and Martin was fastidious about his tools. But Martin's hammer would not be the hammer found at the crime scene. But remember, it's believed two hammers were used and one is missing. Then there's this guy named Bo. Full name Severin John Bobaday, who was living with Martin and Marilyn at the time. This guy. Where to begin? Supposedly, Martin and Bo met in a military psychiatric hospital in Reno, where they both were patients. But other reports suggest they were friends much earlier than that, and that Bo had never even been to that hospital. It would later come out that Bo was from Chicago, where he had a long criminal history as a thief and hitman, and had spent a lot of time in prison. It was being whispered about that Bo had asked Sue out earlier, but she'd rebuffed his advances. But Bo tells investigators that he is a former police officer. He was shot during an armed robbery and is now impotent because of the gunshot, so he'd have no interest in Sue. He also says Marilyn is his niece. All lies. Why make all that stuff up? It's so weird, the things this guy says. And uh, there's transcripts of the police interview online. I will post links to them for the curious. Martin Bow and Marilyn's alibis were that they'd been in the backdoor bar drinking together. But the three had left at one point, and only Martin and Bow had returned to close the bar. So now remember, we said the sheriff had lived in cabin 28. And Martin, Bo, and Marilyn lived right by there. So the sheriff and Martin knew each other very well. And some said they were actually really good friends. And Martin would drive around in the squad car with the sheriff drinking beer. But others say that that's not true at all, and they were merely acquaintances. Regardless, the sheriff lets Martin and Bo go, as suspicious as they're acting. And the two immediately flee both town and the state, going to Reno, Nevada together. And they're never questioned again. 
Okay. Uh, Martin's wife, Marilyn, claims a bloody jacket was found in the basement, a jacket that she thinks belonged to Tina and Martin supposedly left there and was discovered by the sheriff. But there's no documentation of any coat ever being registered as evidence. If this jacket existed, it disappeared. Marilyn also says Bo had once told her it wouldn't bother him to kill a child or a, quote, broad, and believes Bo and Martin burned something when they returned home that night. But there is another suspect. Tina's teacher at Quincy Elementary School, Joel Lipsy, had reportedly had a strange fixation with her. He had a picture of her on his desk and her picture framed in his home. He'd also been accused of molestation of a child at a previous school. So, oh, the 70s, when you can get fired for molesting a child and then go to another school and get rehired. It's crazy. It's so creepy and disturbing. But um, this guy, too, he's got a rock solid alibi. Like Twin Peaks, we can see the veneer of this wholesome American town begin to slowly fade away revealing the rot beneath as the strange cast of characters begin to reveal themselves. And meanwhile, Tina is missing. And 12-year-old Justin, who had been sleeping in the other room during the murders, he remembers something from that night. But it was a dream. So the sheriff, without consulting the FBI, by the way, has the kid hypnotized so that he can remember his dream. We're going into full-on Twin Peaks territory now. <laughs> so crazy. Justin remembers that in his dream, they'd all been on a huge sea liner out in the ocean. They'd actually been watching the love boat that night, and Greg naturally dreamed they were on the love boat. The love boat soon will be making another run. Oh, shit. I love that show as a kid, man. Uh, and that night, there was a brand new one out, and they were all excited about it. Uh, IMBD describes this uh, episode as Captain Steubing's friend is a gambler who becomes a bad influence on Vicky. And old-time members of a gang reunite to rob the ship's vault. Sounds like a good one. So there's actual transcripts of the hypnotism session. We'll put links in the show notes. You can read it. The doctor literally has Justin look at his watch and focus on the second hand, then goes off on this spiel. Here's a little excerpt, edited ever so lightly for clarity. All right, the doctor says. Just keep staring only at the watch. And you might find that with each breath you take, you get a little bit deeper relaxed. And you start to feel more relaxed as the second hand goes around and around and the watch gets kind of heavy and your eyes blinking more and more and they get heavier. Let your muscles get completely loose and limp, kind of floppy, just like an old damp dish rag, loose and limp and relaxed. I think you can begin to let your muscles get very, very loose and warm and relax, just like cooked spaghetti. Loose and limp and floppy like cooked spaghetti. And right now, all that you need is to think about getting your muscles as limp and floppy as possible. This is the real transcripts of this hypnotist putting this guy under, by the way. I'm going to ask you to use your imagination now. Go ahead, staying very comfy and describe 
what you see? I'm I'm watching the love boat and I see Greg, his mom, Ricky and me. And Tina walks in and says she is going to bed and then she goes to bed. And then we watched Love Boat and then we go to bed. And their mom was still laying down and the TV was still on. Then me and Ricky slept. Then I have a dream. Okay, tell me your dream, Justin. What did you dream? I'm on a boat about a mile away from the shore, and there's a lot of people on my boat. Johnny and Dana, they they get into a fight with a man. There's another man in the crowd, and he has the same kind of clothes as the other man does, and they throw Johnny and Dana overboard, and I run down to their mom, and she had a cut on her chest, and then got in a lifeboat and escaped. And then I took a rag and put it on their mom's chest, and then I threw it overboard. This is getting so strange. So also without the help of the FBI, Sheriff Thomas hires a sketch artist to draw the men Greg dreamed about. The drawings are crude and amateurish, often mocked, but damn if one of the men doesn't look just like Martin Smart. Yeah, okay, just to be clear right now, the sheriff's office is now distributing wanted posters for men drawn from a dream. They're even showing the drawings on television. You can find these commercials on YouTube and calling them California's most wanted drawings from a dream. It's so fucking Twin Peaks. I it's seriously- bonkers. It's it's bonkers. I wonder, did, did fucking David Lynch, was he inspired by this? What, you know, because they had like the wanted posters of Bob in Twin Peaks. You know, it's like. Yeah, it's crazy. I We got to look into that. And of course, there was a psychic who the sheriff drove around with. And the sheriff would later be criticized for cruising around with this psychic instead of conducting a more thorough search for missing Tina. Then it comes out that Tina and another girl had been molested in the trailer park in Quincy by one Daniel Workman French, who had been arrested in the matter on lewd and lascivious charges. But all the charges had been dropped, and dark, very disturbing rumors go around that Tina had actually initiated the encounter and had been actively prostituting herself out, and that is why the charges against the man were dropped. And now, let's get into the territory that almost always remains hidden in this case for some reason or another. Remember Sheila, only 14 years old, who had discovered the bodies when she'd gone back to her house to get clothes for church? Well, far from the saintly, innocent church girl she's often portrayed as, she'd actually gotten pregnant the year before, and Sue had taken her to Oregon, where she had the baby, and it was given up for adoption. And Sue Sharp wasn't the teetotaling goody-goody that is often portrayed either. She was a chain smoker, would drink, spend time at the bar. And her best friend was Nina Mama Meeks. Mama Meeks' son, Richard, was supposedly the father of Sheila's baby. Though, of course, rumors abound. There's tales that Mama Meeks' other son, Wade, was sleeping with Marty's wife, Marilyn. And Sue, well, Sue was supposedly having an affair with none other than Martin. 
It was the late 70s and early 80s, a time of swinger parties. It's not that far-fetched to think they were all sleeping together. Loomis County reporter Victoria Metcalf says Sue was, quote, the type that had a lot of men friends constantly coming and going, unquote. Victoria goes on to insinuate that Sue could have been having, quote, sex with men for money, end quote and even replies she was a drug dealer. But just to be clear, there was no drugs found in the house. There was no sign of drugs, and there was no drugs in Sue's system when the autopsy was conducted. But it is said Sue wasn't the great mother she's often portrayed as. Neighbors in Quincy said the children were often wandering around alone, dirty and hungry, while Sue was off partying. In the trailer they lived at in Quincy, John and Ricky were forced to sleep in a storage area on a bare dirt floor. And her ketty neighbor in cabin 27, Paula Seabolt, says she wouldn't let her children have sleepovers at Sue's cabin because she didn't approve of Sue as a parent. It's also said that Sue's ex-husband in Connecticut, well, he wasn't physically abusive at all and did not molest the children. These were simply lies that Sue had spread in order to garner sympathy. And the true reason Sue left him was because he was seeing another woman and had actually moved that woman into a nearby apartment and was starting a new life with her. Sue left Connecticut out of shame and jealousy, not because of physical abuse. At least that's what they say. And this is true, her ex-husband came to Quincy to visit the family. So would you let a physically abusive ex-husband who molested your children come and visit for a normal family vacation? Why would you even tell them where you were at all? If she was running away in fear, why wouldn't she keep her whereabouts a secret? Even the secretarial school Sue went to in order to better herself and find a career was supposedly a scam. Apparently, CETA had a grant paying for people to go to school, so they would register for Feather River College, but not even show up, just pocketing the money. Supposedly, all of them were doing it. Mama and Wade Meeks, Marilyn and Marty Smart, and Sue. And as for being a hard worker, Sue had only been employed very shortly as a dishwasher when she first arrived in Quincy. And after that, never had a real job again. It said Mama Meeks was furious that Sheila's baby was put up for adoption. Because if her son Richard was the father, that made her the grandmother. But supposedly, Dana Hall Wingate, Johnny's friend who was sleeping over and also murdered, he too was rumored to be the father. And he was sleeping with another woman who is much older than himself, 27-year-old Kathy Beckley. And she's the one who actually drove Johnny and Dana to Cabin 28 that night despite it being said that they had hitchhiked there. There are also rumors going around that Marty could have been the father of Sheila's baby. And to top it all off, there were wild underground LSD parties going on in the area as well. And supposedly a dealer had a 10-pack ripped off. That's 10 sheets of acid all together in one page, 1,000 hits. And there's tales of a gang headed by Acid Head Steve that supposedly broke into mortuaries to play with dead bodies. This, yikes, this is just like <laughs> the most bonkers. Like, it's like 
all over the place. It's crazy. And of course, everyone was talking about the unsolved murder from nearly 10 years before. In October 1973, 14-year-old Kathy Ann Howard disappeared from Quincy. Her body was found in Strawberry Valley. Kathy Howard was a student at Quincy Junior Senior High School when she was murdered. And the story just gets spookier and spookier. Strawberry Valley, too. It's just like that Stephen King short story, Strawberry Spring, right? And in that one, there's a serial killer that attacks every eight to ten years. Crazy. And uh, how did you dig that connection up? My fucking weird head. (laughs) <laughs> love it fabulous but it was like a, a serial killer that shows up every eight to ten years in a strawberry just like what yeah yeah i remember that story meanwhile sheriff thomas he just resigns quits three months after the murders says he's getting a better higher paying job and remember tina 12 years old is still missing the fbi writes up a profile of what they think the killer is like and they bounce as well the case goes completely cold It's just crazy to think that there's a missing 12-year-old girl and the sheriff just quits. The FBI drops the case. It's insane. And then three years later, on April 22nd, 1984, a man out looking for tin cans in the forest near Feather Falls in neighboring Butte County, nearly 100 miles away from Ketty, discovers a human skull. And at first, because it's land bordering on a reservation, the skull is believed to be from a Native American, most likely from the Maidu tribe. But then, authorities in Butte County receive a strange 911 call. In the call, a man's voice, very calmly and casually, asks about the skull found, and says maybe they should look at those murders that happened in Ketty three years prior, where a 12-year-old girl went missing. The operator says they're pretty sure it's a man's skull. Like, who just gives that information over the 911 airways, but okay. Mm -hmm. And writes down the information the friendly man gives her regardless. This anonymous call led investigators in Butte County to compare dental records on the skull to those of missing Tina Sharp. And sure enough, they're a match. But who was this mysterious man who called in the tip? Surely he must know more. Could he be the actual killer? Butte County investigators mail copies of the tape to the sheriff in Plumas County, but the tape is never marked into evidence and goes missing. Although they were able to identify the skull as being that of Tina Sharp, there was no way to determine how or when she died. But near the skull, they also find a child's blanket, a blue jacket, Levi jeans, and an empty surgical tape dispenser. The empty surgical tape dispenser says it all, and should have been a major, major clue in my opinion. And then, just when you think it can't get any weirder, When infamous liar and wannabe serial killer Henry Lee Lucas and his pal Otis Toole are in the news, there's all this speculation that they could have been behind the murders. Investigators across the country were pinning their unsolved murders on the two. And just thank God it was quickly proven that they weren't anywhere near the crime scene because Lucas would definitely have confessed to it. He confessed to anything and everything to over 600 murders relishing the attention, coffee, and cigarettes it got him. 
God, a joke. Bo dies in 1988, one of the prime suspects in the case, a violent man with a long criminal history, a supposed hitman and murderer with severe mental issues. He'd only been interviewed that one time before fleeing the state. And that's it for decades. Sheila says she would occasionally call the sheriff's department, asking if there were any new leads, anything at all, nothing. She says she felt they weren't putting any effort into it at all. Marty, the other main suspect, dies in 2000. It looked like the case was set to be forgotten, swept into the dustbin of history. And in 2004, Cabin 28 was razed to the ground and destroyed. But in 2005, a writer by the name of Josh Hancock, who is a horror writer, by the way, though I actually haven't read any of his stuff. Josh uh, makes a documentary on the case called Cabin 28 and a sequel as well. And this sparks interest again. And this guy, his name is, they, he goes by DMAC, I think, D-M-A-C. I don't know. His real name is out there. And it's easy to find, but apparently he doesn't want people using his real name. So out of respect, we're just going to call him DMAC. Well, this guy, DMAC, he becomes obsessed with this case. He begins to meticulously research everything. And he starts a website called cabin28.com where he posts his findings. Going through all the files and photos he can get his hands on, DMAC uses Photoshop to enhance an image that shows the receipt for the mysterious tape of the man calling to report that the found skull was indeed the remains of Tina Sharp, proving that the tape did exist and had been in the hands of the Plumas County Sheriff Department. And so there's a new sheriff in Plumas now, Greg Hagwood. Awesome name, by the way. So DMAC sends Hagwood the image. And the sheriff, intrigued, starts rummaging through the evidence locker. And he uncovers a box simply labeled Keddy Shit. It's unbelievable. And in this box, he finds a blank, sealed manila envelope. Nothing written on it, sealed. In the bottom corner of this random box labeled Keddy Shit. And in that manila envelope, is the copy of the tape that Butte County had mailed them, as well as the original tape as well. I mean, it had to have been a cover-up of some sort, right? Or was it just completely incompetent police work? Well, guess what? That tape is on YouTube now. Of course it is. And we will put a link to it in the show notes. Let us know. Does it sound suspicious to you? Oh, good Lord. DMAC is working feverishly, though, uncovering more things, emailing Sheriff Hagwood all his findings. There's a lot of signs of a cover-up of some sort, not just the tape that had been lost in evidence. There's the bloody coat Marilyn claims was turned over to the sheriff. And it seems the search for missing Tina, an abducted 12-year-old, was delayed unnecessarily and was only half-heartedly conducted, nowhere near as thorough as it could have been. In fact, the head of search and rescue, Dennis Forsino, was sent to Sacramento with the body for the autopsy for some reason. Why would the head of search and rescue, who knows the area better than anybody else, be sent to Sacramento when there's a missing 12-year-old girl? And why was an organized crime team sent from the Department of Justice and not a homicide team? Could it be because of all the mob connections that Bo had? 
Could Bo have been an informant for the FBI? Was Bo being protected by the DOJ and or the FBI? And was the old sheriff, Sheriff Thomas, who just quits a few months after the murders, was he aware of all these connections? Mike Gamberg was a deputy at the time and is now in special investigations. He grew up in the area, knew a lot of the players. He says he was told to stay away from the case or he'd be fired. He also says that all reports at that time were written by hand and had to be signed. But the reports that are now on file are all typed and none of them are signed. He says they are forgeries and facts have been both changed and removed. Apparently, when Sheriff Thomas lived in Cabin 28, the whole resort was a hive of drug activity. And after he left, many tenants were evicted for illicit drug activity. The whole place was cleaned up, and none other than Martin Smart was fired from his job as chef. Rent for his family's cabin had been part of his payment as chef. And now that he was fired, he had no way to pay the rent, further exasperating his relationship with Marilyn. It also ends up that a mental health counselor who Martin Smart had been seeing at the VA hospital in Reno says that Martin confessed to killing Sue and Tina, but says he didn't kill the boys. But it was reported anonymously, and as it wasn't reported for years, hadn't been tape recorded or even documented in writing, it was considered hearsay. But it does go to show that therapists can and will tell the cops what you tell them. Remember that, kids? Oh, boy. So there's also these weird love letters that are found of Marty pleading with Marilyn to get back together. In one of them, Marty cryptically mentions four lives being lost. But if you look at the letter in context, he's obviously talking about his own living children who missed out on a figurative life, not a literal one. Yeah, people are always talking about that letter. And then um, there's this guy rummaging around in an old dried up lake bed in the area. And he uncovers an old rusty hammer. Remember, forensics believe there was a second hammer used, most likely the hammer missing from Martin's tools. So a potential murder weapon is uncovered. Things are just popping. In 2016, DNA is lifted from some of the white medical tape used in the crime. This DNA matches a known living suspect. The sheriff says, quote, several other people are involved and they're still alive. We have most of them identified, and we're coming for them. They better batten down the hatches, because we're coming. And then, nothing. Again. Just nothing. And then in 2018, because of budgetary reasons, the case is shuttered and goes cold. I, I don't, So frustrating. Jesus, talk about some empty words. We're coming for them, and yeah. nothing. Meanwhile, old DMAC is going into deep conspiracy theory land. He comes up with this theory that nearly everyone is involved. He opines that Marilyn was furious with Sue for having an affair with Marty. Mama Meeks was furious with Sue for having her grandchild given up for adoption. Bo was mad at Sue for spurning his advances. And Marty was mad at Sue for telling Marilyn to leave him. It's this cyclone of anger, and Sue is the eye of the storm. So they all get together under the direction of and here's where it gets completely crazy. 14-year-old Sheila. 
Yes, it was little Sheila who was behind it all. Sheila hated her mother for making her give her child up for adoption, and she hated Tina for getting all the attention, so she sent Tina to the house that night, knowing she would be killed because she was jealous of her sister. And it was Sheila who turned off the big streetlight and then unscrewed the porch light before she left to spend the night at the Seabolts. Now, I personally, I don't believe this. I don't believe that a 14-year-old masterminded this complex criminal enterprise and Everyone's kept their mouth shut all these years and no one's broke and told the truth. But just to be completely upfront, we're not investigators. We don't claim to be. We're just storytellers telling you the findings of our research, which is thoroughly documented and you can find it all in the show notes. But everything we say is literally hearsay. I will be giving you my own personal beliefs at the end though don't worry but that's all they are my personal beliefs and obviously everyone is innocent until proven guilty under the color of law all that being said let's get into some of the details about the murder some facts and then we can try to piece together what happened that night first the people 15 year old johnny and his best friend dana are running around town they're at the arcade going to parties, and end up at Dana's 27-year-old girlfriend Kathy's house. Martin, Marilyn, and Bo are at the back door bar drinking. Both Martin and Bo are wearing three-piece polyester disco suits and mirrored sunglasses. Marilyn was wearing a floor-length white gown. Some speculate they were trying to draw attention for an alibi. They drink, they dance. There's a DJ there, because it was a slow night. Most nights they had a live band. Sue is home, watching television with the kids. Five-year-old Greg, 10-year-old Rick, and 12-year-old Tina. Rick's friend Justin, who is, remember, Marilyn's son and Martin's stepson, is also there watching television with them. And he decides to spend the night. It's often speculated that neither Martin nor Marilyn had any idea that their son was there that night as they were at the bar at the time, drinking heavily in their disco outfits. Shortly after midnight, Marilyn, Martin, and Bo leave the bar, supposedly arguing about rock music versus country music. Johnny and Dana convince Dana's girlfriend, Kathy Beckley, to give them a ride to Cabin 28. She drops them off around one in the morning, and she notices the house is dark. Okay, the reason she's noticing the house was dark was because the big streetlight outside the cabin had been turned off and someone had unscrewed the porch light. Does this mean that the killer is already there in the house at this time? In the morning, all the drapes would be seen to be drawn as well. But we're not sure when that happened or whether they were drawn when Kathy dropped them off or not. Johnny and Dana then go into their downstairs unit. Remember, the bedroom that Johnny lived in was a downstairs unit in the basement, and it's only accessible through this outside door. At 1.15 a.m., neighbors are awoken by screaming. Martin and Bo return to the bar at 1.30, slightly disheveled, missing their vests. Some consider this suspicious. Now... To me, when you're in your disco suit and your mirror shades at the bar 
and you leave and come back missing your vest all disheveled. That means you were there getting blasted on coke, man. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't necessarily mean that you brutally butchered an entire family, you know. They didn't have any blood on them. And they continued drinking at the bar until closing time. Marilyn presumably having gone to bed back at the cabin that she shared with Martin and Bo. Okay, so Sue's glasses were on her nightstand beside her ever-present ashtray. And she never went anywhere without her glasses. She was practically blind without them. And since she was presumably only wearing a pair of red shorts and it's cold there in the mountains in April... We can assume she was in bed, probably sleeping when the killer or killers entered the house, surprising her. If someone had knocked on the door or she'd heard something and gone to investigate, she would have put on her glasses. Also, Tina would have been sleeping right next to her. So if the killer, as it appears, went to the bedroom and woke Sue up, did he know that Tina was there? Could Tina have been the one to scream at 1.15, waking up to see the killer binding her mother, possibly even surprising the killer? Or had the killer come specifically for Tina? We know that Sue is brought into the living room. That's where she's found. She's bound twice, first with medical tape, then with electrical cord from a lamp in her bedroom. The electrical cord around her wrist is tied with a double-clove hitch-type knot. So did the killer bring the medical tape with them? And remember, the empty dispenser was found three years later with Tina's skull. That should have been a major clue. Trace back the medical tape, find where it came from, you have the killer. But other items used in the crime were from the house. The electrical cord was from the house, as were the knives and hammer used. So how prepared was the killer? If the killer wasn't Martin and Bo, had they cased the house as well as stolen Martin's hammer? Autopsy reports also show Sue had nicks to her ear from a knife, and these nicks had cut some of her hair. Hair you can even see in the crime scene photos. So the killer or killers were poking at her with the knife? Why? Could the killer have simply been taunting her as like a means of torture? Or could he have been interrogating her, questioning her about something? Obviously, Johnny and Dana come up from the downstairs unit. Now, they have to go out the exterior door and walk up those outside wooden steps to the main unit's entrance. It's the middle of the night. They're teenagers. Why they went up is a mystery. Did they hear something? Could they have been ordered up? Did they surprise the killer or killers? For all we know, they could have been going to the refrigerator for a midnight snack. At some point, Sue is struck in the face with an 880 Daisy air rifle. Now, a lot of articles you see talk about this being a BB gun. It's not a BB gun. A BB gun has a much shorter barrel. It looks like a toy. These are air rifles. It looks like a real gun. A lot of them, it comes with an actual scope. I believe the killer, or possibly one of the killers, was using this pellet gun as a means of control, pretending it was a real gun, ordering the victims around while threatening them with the air rifle. It said it did not belong to the Sharps. So where did this gun come from? The only light that was on in the house was the bathroom light, and it cast a line of light into the living room. This line of light is where the couch cushion was placed, the one Dana's head was resting on. 
but it's thought that this area where the thin line of light was, was the killing zone. The killer would place the victim's head on the cushion that was placed just so in the dim light, not to comfort them, but to silence the sound of beating their head with a hammer. Something to note from Sue's autopsy report, quote, smeared blood is present on the undersurface of both feet, excluding the arches of the feet, suggesting that the individual stood or walked in blood, end quote. So, this would seem to indicate that she wasn't the first one beaten or killed, unless she somehow stepped into her own blood. But could this be Tina's blood if she had been incapacitated earlier? Forensic testing was done. It clearly states in the autopsy report that swabs of the blood on her feet were sent for testing, but the results have not been released to the public. If we knew whose blood Sue was stepping in, though... It would really make the chain of events a lot clearer. And how did the children sleeping in the next room not wake up and hear something? Three people brutally murdered with a hammer, a fourth abducted, and these kids sleep through it all? If in fact it was a commotion that woke John and Dana downstairs and drew them up into the main area of the cabin, it should go to say that if it was loud enough to wake them, all the way downstairs in a separate unit, it would surely wake the boys sleeping right in the other room. And why was Tina taken? Was she the main target? And if so, why? Could she have been singled out as a victim and abducted for sexual reasons? Nearly everyone interviewed who knew her comments on how pretty she was, and she had previously been molested by a neighbor. Many investigators and theorists point out that Sue was not sexually assaulted, but I disagree. Just because she wasn't raped doesn't mean she wasn't physically assaulted. Her shorts were lying beside her, which means the perpetrator obviously told her to take them off. Her underwear were cut off with a knife and shoved in her mouth. There is blood smeared on her thighs, leading one to believe someone with bloody hands was rubbing her upper thighs. How is that not sexual assault? I mean, to me, that alone is sexual assault. And a lot of sexually sadistic psychopaths and serial killers don't need to actually rape someone, even to achieve climax. The acts alone will bring release. Infamous Russian serial killer Andrei Chikatilo comes to mind as an example of this. Also, if the killer was surprised by the sudden appearance of Johnny and Dana, he may not have had time to actually rape Sue. He could have been in the very beginning of the act. Or could Tina have been singled out for another reason? Here's one that is often speculated. Could she have been pregnant? If rumors are to be believed about why the molestation charges were dropped, Tina was sexually active. If she was pregnant, could the father, terrified of being discovered to be having relations with an underage girl, have abducted and killed her as a means of hiding his actions? Sheriff Hagwood would say when the case was reopened in the 2010s, quote, I think there was something about Tina that could not be left there to be discovered. It's my strong sense that there's something about Tina that did not allow for her to be left there, end quote. And where exactly was Tina during everything that happened? Did she witness the murders? Was she already dead? Was she bound and incapacitated, knocked out? 
And where was she taken afterwards? Right. If Martin and Bo were responsible for this crime, as most seem to believe, where was Tina afterwards? Martin and Bo slept there at their cabin that night. They were there when Marilyn woke up in the morning. And their cabin was searched by police. There was no blood, no signs of a 12-year-old girl had been there, either dead or alive. I guess they could have had the body stashed somewhere. It just seems awful difficult to not only get all that blood off you. Remember, there was blood on the walls, on the ceiling, on everything. And then stash either a body or a living girl somewhere and come back for it later when now the police is swarming with cops, FBI, DOJ, sheriffs, helicopters circling. It leads me to believe someone took off with that little girl right then and there and didn't come back. You ever play that game Clue? Not for a long time. (laughs) Well, you remember you answer with the person, the weapon, and the place? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, here we go. I'm going to solve the mystery of Cabin 28. All right, all right. Let's hear it. Solve the mystery for us. The killer was the Golden State Killer in the living room with a hammer. (laughs) Okay, hear me out. Hear me out. Remember we talked about Kathy Ann Howard, who disappeared right down the road in Quincy nine years before the Ketty murders in October 1973? She was only 14. Her body was found in Strawberry Valley. Well, Kathy Howard was a student at Quincy Junior Senior High School when she was murdered. So, a survivor of the Golden State Killer... He believes he actually met the Golden State Killer earlier, the man now known as Jody Angelo, and he met him for the first time at Bucks Lake near Quincy and Ketty in the summer of 1974. And Jody Angelo had been stalking him and his girlfriend. He believes that when D'Angelo attacked him and sexually assaulted his girlfriend, he was an on-duty police officer as well. So... Like, D'Angelo was literally stalking people in this area. Joe D'Angelo's thing was he'd memorize paths. He'd make maps of the drainage ditches. He'd run around at night snooping on homes, taking notes of those who had their lights on, who was still awake. Really scary guy. So in 1978, a suspicious man appeared at Riverside Convalescent Hospital in Sacramento and told a nurse his name was... Jack from the town of Quincy. Four days afterward, on April 14th, 1978, the Golden State Killer, then known as the East Area Rapist, struck near the hospital, and it was suspected he may have been Jack. And just one week later, Lynette Maloff was murdered in her home in Piedmont, California. She was from Ketty, and like Kathy Ann Howard, had attended Quincy Junior Senior High School in 1972. And check this out. Her brother Gary later owned the Ketty Resort. Jesus. And Joe D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer. He did his crimes completely silently in the dead of the night, in the dark. He'd tie victims up and creep around the house. They wouldn't even know where he was or if he was still there. He was a burglar, 
as well as being trained in the military and by the police in stealth, and could slip silently in and out of houses. Absolutely terrifying. Oh, he creeps me out so bad. And uh, on April 11th, 1981, when Sue, John, and Dana were murdered, and Tina was abducted in Cabin 28. Well, the Golden State Killer had just murdered Manuela Withun in Irvine two months earlier. He'd snuck stealthily into the house while she was sleeping, surprised her in bed, bound her, raped, and bludgeoned her to death. So similar. And what may have happened in Cabin 28, if the killer had perhaps not been surprised by Johnny and Dana coming up from their downstairs unit. Yes, D'Angelo staked out his targets, Parking far away, he'd creep to the scene through paths and drainage ditches, hiding in the shadows, and then study the residents. So if he'd been watching the house, the downstairs unit would have been completely dark at 1 a.m. Johnny and Dana were still on their way from Quincy. He'd creep up the steps, turn off the streetlight switch, and unscrew the porch bulb, because he loved the darkness. That's what he'd say to his victims. I'll be gone in the dark. Then, in the middle of the attack, the boys come home. Their arrival times and the estimated time of the murders, as formulated by the screams that woke the neighbors, are quite close. And then, just three months later, D'Angelo murdered Cherry Domingo and Gregory Sanchez in their home, again breaking in, finding Domingo and bludgeoning her to death, this time with a garden tool. In another murder, D'Angelo had used a pipe wrench he found on the scene. Again, an object found at the scene, like the hammer, in cabin 28. He'd also covered Sanchez with clothes, and remember Sue had been covered with a blanket. D'Angelo also often brought bindings with him, cut pieces of rope. Could he have been experimenting with this murder and brought medical tape? Then not been satisfied with the strength of the tape, and resorted to cut electrical cords. And to bring it back to the unsolved murder of Kathy Howard, the site where Tina's skull was found is not that far from Strawberry Valley, where Kathy Howard's body had been found, which can lead one to think that they were the same killer. Often serial killers leave bodies in clusters in certain areas. For instance, both Ted Bundy and the Green River Killer had their own little wooded areas in Washington they'd use. There had also been sightings of a strange green van that night. In a tiny neighborhood like that where everyone knew everybody and was all up in their business, a strange green van seems, well, just strange. If it wasn't actually Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, maybe it was someone like him, a traveling, stalking killer. As we discussed in our Freeway Killers trilogy, there were a lot of them around at the time. In fact, the boxcar killer, Robert Silveria Jr., actually confessed to this crime at one point, though many point out he was only known to kill other hobos and ended up confessing to a slew of crimes he couldn't have committed. But there were railroad tracks by Ketty, and in 1982, there were some hobos murdered in Ketty. There was also Tommy Sells, a serial killer who hopped freight trains, randomly choosing houses to attack as he rode the rails. 
So the idea of this crime being committed by a random killer with no ties to the community is very possible. Right, right. So after we've gone through all the evidence as meticulously as we could, what do you personally think? Uh, I don't know. I mean, part of me feels like the fact that Tina was taken, like it does seem like, I don't know, like it was like, let's leave all this chaos and then take this one girl away. Like it was meant to distract distract from her abduction. But then it was surprising to me that her, it, it would, I would love to know. And I know because we, you know, we, we explicitly stated this, but I would love to know like when and how she had died. Like, was it that same yeah. night? Because if so, then, you know, maybe, I don't know. There, there, it doesn't, it's almost like, I don't hate to say this, but it's almost like not as intriguing. Maybe she was killed that night and just for whatever reason that one body was taken. But if she was killed like years year later, later, right? That, that would be. Then it's very telling of, of what? I don't know, but more telling than. Really disturbing too. Yeah. Um. What about Dmac? Is he still up in this case? Yeah, he Dmac is this crazy character that will tell you to fuck off and say all podcasters must die. And, oh shit! <laughs> yeah, and like he's a he's a very controversial character. Uh, I mean, he's done some amazing work in this case, but he has his beliefs, and we outlined what they are. And uh, he really believes them, and like he doesn't like it if you contradict him at all. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, and here's some updates, actually. So they say Bo is still alive and well, and his 1988 death was falsified to protect his identity. And he is currently living in Florida. I have no idea if this is true or not. I'm just relating some of what I saw online. Interesting. And remember, DNA was found at one point though nothing concrete seems to have been released about it. Apparently, DMAC was able to track down Bo's five children and discovered that the DNA sample used by law enforcement was from someone most likely not Bo's biological child, so the DNA testing for Bo would be inconclusive. Again, this is what's posted on the internet. We're not professional investigators and have not corroborated any of this. You know, so much of this case is available online to look at, Autopsy reports, crime scene photos, police reports, interviews, even the police's own timeline of events. And we're going to put links to all of it in the show notes. And there's all kinds of old news footage and even 3D representations of the house and crime scene on Ketty28 YouTube channel. And that's actually DMAX YouTube channel. It's got some really fun. I mean... I say fun, but you know how old news footage looks in like the old. Yes, yes. I love that stuff. So definitely go there and take a look if this case interests you. And also, I want to give a huge credit to the Great Zodiac Killer Hoax of 1986 website and Thomas Henry Horan for making all of this wealth of information available. He's got so much stuff posted up on his website and there's also a lot of other great um research into other famous crimes and their community really digs deep and and you can find some amazing theories and uh they're good people over there it seems like 
Oh, and there you have it, dear listeners and fellow freaks. The Ketty murders and the unsolved mystery of Cabin 28. And we have a very special October planned. We're going to get fully spooky and scary all month. You're going to love it. And we're going to be howling at the moon together. And as always, we want to hear from you. Got a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? You just want to say hi? Drop us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. Catch you next time.